0: Welcome back to the Deeper Cut Podcast, a podcast ministry of Mercy Hill Presbyterian Church. Good day. I'm happy to be with you today from our studio in beautiful Pittman, New Jersey, and accompanied as always by our pastor, Phil Henry. Phil, how are you this fine day?
1: I'm well, Tim. Good morning. Good morning. Joining joining me here <laughs> yeah thanks for hosting me here thanks for letting me be part of the show <laughs> I would say the same to you Phil
0: um, beautiful spring day we have it today really yeah. uh, puts puts me at least in a good a good mood um, even with a, a hard topic <laughs> at hand uh, that that was was preached
1: from our pulpit yesterday maybe the intro music to this podcast should be. What a wonderful world. <laughs> I'm just gonna take
0: that clip. Okay, all right, and, and we'll uh, we'll put that in. Um, but no, seriously, it's it's good to be with you. We uh, we've often choked on this podcast about having a podcast before the podcast starts, and we have certainly done that today. All cards on the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have been talking for probably about an hour and fifteen minutes already before we hit the record button so
1: um and that's what people could have heard if they joined us oh oh,
0: (laughs) we're gonna put the shameless plug at the beginning of the episode this week yes um we'll probably cover a lot of that stuff but uh, i i bring that up more to say there's so much to talk about in the three (laughs) verses that you preached on Mm -hmm. um and a lot of different things that that you know, we could say, and we'll endeavor to to get into some of those areas, but this by no means will be an all-encompassing, deeper cut. Mm-hmm. We'll just call it the deep cut, and there's probably a deeper cut out there somewhere mm-hmm. um, that needs to be had. But, Agreed. Um, with that being said, we're, we're still on First Peter, as we've been since the beginning of the year. This week was kind of a, a part two of a two-week, I don't want to call it a mini-series, but, you know, looking at verses that you had started with last week and, and continued on this week in, in a more sharper focus, if you will, in First Peter 2, uh, verses 18 to 20. And so, uh, Phil, I thought maybe it would be good, I'm going to read the, those verses first okay. just to kind of remind everyone what's, what's the topic for today. And then, as we usually do, Phil, we, we spend a couple of minutes just talking about some some of the homiletics or the... Mm-hmm. The preaching approach, if you will, and um, maybe we can start there because this is a tough passage. As if you if you're not familiar with these verses, I'm going to read them in a second. A tough passage in scripture, and um, certainly wasn't your run of the mill every day type sermon. I don't think that um, that we heard, and I would presume wasn't an easy one to prepare um, or kind of work through. But I, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. So
1: agreed was not easy to to prepare or preach but uh, let's hear the verses and we can yeah i'm reading from the in.
0: esv uh, so starting in verse 18 of chapter 2 in first peter servants be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust for this is a gracious thing when mindful of god one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if you if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So we'll we'll you know, kind of go down a couple rabbit holes um, about the, the text itself and and what you preached yesterday, Phil. But again, I mean, I have not preached on these verses, but I don't think I'd volunteer to do to do that if you asked me to. So where um where was your your heart on this? What was God leading you into last week in your preparation and kind of how do you navigate this from a a pastor and a preacher's perspective, you know, in terms of what do you bring into the congregation to hear from from God's word on Sunday morning?
1: Great question, Tim. So I had prepared a sermon last week with about half of the material I needed to or I thought I needed to preach 13 through 20 which includes the three verses you just read and a a handful of others and literally on my way to church um, and I wanted wanted to dispatch with this I mean the, the you know I plan out my preaching portions months in advance, sometimes even more than that, Uh, thinking and and praying and studying carefully and thinking about the needs of the church. Uh, But I'm always open to, uh, obviously that's kind of the, a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps, right? So I'm I'm always open to adjusting and changing um, that plan. And literally on the way to, on the way to church, uh, not with an audible voice, but God told me, he said, he said, we need, we need to pause and give a full Sunday to addressing slavery. Hmm. And, uh, So, you know, the argument that ensued, it's only seven minutes, but the argument that ensued continued as I was preparing. And really when I stepped up to the pulpit to begin preaching last Sunday, um, it it was clear in my mind that we needed to hear about being God's servants and, um, and, and, and the general call to honor, which was the focus of last Sunday's message. Right. And this Sunday, we needed to focus on uh, slavery as an idea in the Bible for apologetic reasons. And I mentioned in the message that it is often used as a canard or a little rubber duck, that's thro- a chicken that's thrown at Christians. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the average person in our congregation isn't entering into uh, intense debates with atheists and skeptics about slavery but I know their friends are or have. And so I'm often thinking about equipping, in the pulpit, equipping people, not just for the conversations that they are having, but conversations that people that they have yet to invite to our fellowship are having, uh, uh, as a way of uh, regularly demonstrating the trustworthiness, you know, this is what your friends will hear when they come. Mm. Uh, hopefully a respectful, but uh, simple and profound engagement with issues that are, are real. You know, live ammo, so to speak. Mm. So um, plus the, the, there isn't a single person, whether you're in the academic setting, a medical setting, law enforcement, judicial, uh, corporate, uh, nonprofit, uh, self-employed, you know, entrepreneurial. Every every person with a job is dealing with diversity, equity, and inclusion, expectations, intersectionality, and every one of those uh, HR hot button sort of tweetable, Instagrammable, hot take sort of topics mm-hmm. uses a tortured, eisegesis understanding of the biblical idea of slavery. (coughs) So, And by eisegesis you mean? Reading into into the text what I want it to say rather than extracting from the text what it actually says. And that doesn't mean that that it's all wrong, it just means that it needs to be uh, cleaned up and uh, rightly understood understood in, in the proper way. And so that's a lot to ask for in, a, in a, for a sermon to accomplish. And mm-hmm. this was, you know, in a way, just a, a gesture, you know, it was just a little kind of like the image I use sometimes is I floated my little rubber ducky across the hot tub or the bathtub. Like this was just one little paper airplane mm. in the conversation, but hopefully it was helpful for our church. And if not immediately helpful, hopefully helpful in the long run. Um, if uh, I don't, I don't wait for encouragement or feedback from people. I, I mentioned to you in our prior conversation that I kind of need to bring my own encouragement into the pulpit and out of the pulpit. It's like I need to be clear in my own mind and in my heart that I've done the work that God wants me to do. Mm. But I got a text from a, a homeschooling mom in our church that thanked me for the sermon because she and her uh, two kids are currently studying the Civil War. Mm. So there's, there's equipping the saints right there for the work of ministry in that I gave her uh, hopefully a pretty well-developed framework to think about slavery that she might not have had time or even the ability to do on her own. Mm.
0: Well, I'm going to give two notes of thanks to you. One is thank you for, um, as our pastor, being, I don't want to say being open, actively listening to the Holy Spirit's leading on how you should, what you should preach and when it should be preached and the church's needs, what we need to hear on a given Sunday. As you just said without saying it, you changed your plans that you would plan months in advance because God laid that on your heart to do that. And it was Palm Sunday this week. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, that's not an easy decision to make, I presume. You know, no. you, you want to preach a Palm Sunday sermon. I would argue, and you, you made one case during your sermon that it was a Palm Sunday sermon. I think you could make a number of cases for that being a Palm hmm. Sunday sermon um notwithstanding that you could pretty easily place Jesus in as the prime example of what Peter's talking about here suffering unjustly um but
1: you know and and Peter does do that which will be my text for Easter um probably I mean that's the plan yeah um I don't know how I'm going to do that because there's a little too much blood in First Peter two twenty-one to twenty-five for my comfort on a resurrection sermon. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, I am trusting God for that. That was a big part of it because the the switcheroo that I that I pulled mm-hmm. created a ripple not just for Palm Sunday but for Easter, which is you know that you don't want to mess that sermon <laughs> up. That's that's yeah, pretty as important. it's
0: often uh, mentioned. It's the Christian Super Bowl.
1: Oh my goodness, <laughs> I haven't
0: heard that one before. Yeah. Um, but but in all seriousness, I know that's a difficult thing. So thank you on behalf of uh, one of your elders uh, on the session with you and also as a member of our church for um, your, just your pastoral heart and your pastoral care of our flock in that way. On a more selfish note, thank you for sharing some of that because you have assigned me... The Topic to exhort the summer of equipping the saints, uh, and so you've given me some nuggets to yeah. uh to mull over, yeah, a little bit too. Um,
1: when yeah. I think of Ephesians, that's good. So, that's good, and that's uh, that's good. <laughs> um, in in this text, um, I, I will also say on the homiletics, we, we may it's maybe the whole podcast certainly could be homiletics today, I think. It is a topical sermon, hmm. so I want uh, to, th- those of our listeners and you, Tim, I'll remind you, if if you know this, this is a reminder that going verse by verse doesn't guarantee that you're not preaching topically. Um, what guarantees you're not preaching topically is that you're actually topical verse by verse will incline you towards topical preaching Mm -hmm. because the verses are not organic to the sentences that are on the page and i had a very difficult time stopping at verse 20. in fact at the very end one of my final comments in the actual sermon itself in the words is to this you were called which is the beginning of verse 21. And it isn't that I didn't talk about Jesus, but in a way, I didn't talk about Jesus. I talked about slavery. Now, I I still, you know, preach Christ. I think, mm-hmm. but uh, not in the fullness of of th- that Peter provides, and not as explicitly as Peter does. Um, my uh, my theological the theological path I was following here actually was Peter Eck. So Peter was given this portion of Scripture when he was tasked with the RUF large group lesson last year. They went, last fall, they went through 1 Peter. And so he had verses 13 to 25. And and I had Peter's notes, thankfully. (laughs) And so I'm giving a shout-out to Peter Eck. He did a great job in the way he handled this. Um, And in his notes, he even had some of his... uh, North Carolina charm, with the little sayings. Um, when I said in the pulpit, I said, "My tendency is to wanna." It, you do me wrong. I'm gonna do you one more. That's from Peter. That was his. That was his saying. Hmm. But he included the saying, "I turn into the equalizer," capital T, capital E. And I didn't know who that was. Is that a, a TV show or, or uh, like some hitman or something? Is uh, my yeah. guess. I don't know.
0: That's my love we'll to do a phone a friend and, and find out what the yeah. reference is.
1: So thanks to Peter for his good work on uh on this. But Peter had the passage that I think the Apostle Peter was uh, that's exegetical preaching right there. Yeah. And you don't necessarily hit every verse when you're preaching uh exegetically, which may come as a shock to some people. But um churches and pastors who quote-unquote brag about or emphasize they're going verse by verse through the Bible. or the If top, topical preaching is bad, they're the worst uh, uh, violators because every single verse presents a new topic. And so right. you just sort of go to town on the topic and then run to the next verse. It winds up being a sequence of topics in a sermon, but not a thoroughly exegetical sermon in my opinion. Having said that, topical preaching is good and I think it's important from time to time. My own view, because this is homiletics 101, is that the primary diet of the church needs to be exegetical, not topical. But exegetical preachers, as such as myself, tend to shy away from topics and we can't. And so this topic was too obvious And it's in the sequence of our going through 1 Peter to avoid, number one. And I wanted to avoid it. I tried to avoid it. I've told you this already. And God said, no, we need need to concentrate on this topic because it's difficult. It's hard. uh, It's uncomfortable. And we need to hear about it.
0: Hmm. Well, uh, you know you didn't just randomly pick these verses to preach a topical sermon that is true so i actually
1: picked there's three peaks in first peter I mean,
0: so even though this is a topic within the letter it is still exegetical in the sense of the bible is giving this to you to talk about exactly. not you saying oh well i'm going to i want to talk about slavery this week right. so i'm going to make that right appear in in the right. words or i'm going to jump out of order or you know we're just yeah. going to go yeah um, do a Bible survey for, for the sake of it. You which, know.
1: which I think is, is valid if the spirit leads the preacher to do that. But in general, the more, uh, I think the, the better approach. And I think it pr- probably it, it lends some, to some stereotyping, you know, planning out an order of sermons six to 12 months in advance is not, um, exactly something that a charismatic or mm. a pentecostal uh, or somebody that wants to just listen to the spirit um, i think i think it can it can lend itself to laziness on the part of the hearer and the preacher
0: mm.
1: so um, i'm i'm looking for that uh, if if you know reformed charismatic is a label but I, I do want to have the spirits leading every single Sunday, not just because mm. I said that that's what we're going to preach, but that's what the spirit has certified that he wants me to preach. So I do ask that question. Mm. And this Sunday, it turned out that we needed to focus on slavery as an institution. And what I said last week, I committed myself to it in, verbally last week because I knew I'd be chickened, I'd chicken out if I didn't. Um, what does the Bible say about slavery? You still,
0: you know, you could have had 10 guys preach those three verses and it's going to be 10 different sermons. So that's still the spirit at work, right, within our pastor, within the man who's preaching from our pulpit on a Sunday. So we we trust that God is providentially using you and working through you in having us here what he wants us to hear on a given Sunday. So even if that was a verse that was picked out six months in advance, that doesn't make the Spirit's work null and void,
1: if you will. Right, So. Well, uh, I mentioned there's three mountains in in Peter, Mm -hmm. three uh, mega challenging texts. This is the first. The second is um, telling the women of our church that they're to call their husbands Lord, just like Sarah called Abraham Lord. Uh, tongue-in-cheek there, uh, Lord Tim. (laughs) (laughs) And then the third is uh, uh, Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison and baptism saving you in that little text of 1 Peter 3. So those are the three mighty peaks, meaning the biggest biblical challenges Mm. and cultural challenges in preaching this book. I knew that these would be challenging texts, when I started preparing my sermon series last year. And I've been, by the grace of God, again, Homiletics 101, have been able to study and marinate on all of these topics of just files f- filled with uh, contemporary and classic commentary on these texts and uh, analyses of slavery and, and so forth. I mean, even in the in the, the paper this week was this, quote, um, "This is Saturday, so or Friday." Um, the, and this is a film professor at University of Texas, Yaki Smith. In the 19th and 20th centuries, lynching was a white public spectacle meant to warn and intimidate black people who, quote, disrupted the status quo or, quote, violated the law. These supposed infractions by black troublemakers were arbitrary. A black person could be killed for not moving off the sidewalk when passing by a white person. So this is Yuki Smith's uh, quick historical anecdote on lynching, essentially. In 1870, for example, when politician Wyatt Outlaw was appointed town commissioner and a constable of Graham, North Carolina. How's that for a name? For a constable, Wyatt Outlaw in North Carolina. (laughs) He was lynched by the White Brotherhood, a branch of the KKK, his infraction serving as the first African-American town commissioner and constable of Graham. Hmm. So then he pivots, Yuki Smith pivots, In these days, a traditional lynching is almost universally unacceptable. Most people can't even fathom the barbaric act happening now, and they can't believe their ancestors may have participated in the carnage back then. However, modern-day attacks on diversity, equity, and inclusion policies in higher education institutions are the equivalent of lynching. So I say no. Um, and, and that's what's behind me saying, that's what an example, a, a little more controversial example of me saying, if me supporting or opposing the ordination of a homosexual to the pastorate marks me as a racist, then I'm a racist. And if me opposing Yaki Smith on this point marks me as a racist, then I'm a racist. Hmm. But I think that, uh, and this is an understatement. is a travesty of justice to equate political support of DEI policies at a university to the lynching of Wyatt Outlaw, the first black uh, deputy in North Carolina. It's a it's a travesty. It's an insult to Frederick Douglass, who was my he was my hero in the sermon. You know, besides Christ, I was upholding Frederick Douglass as a preacher. As a politician, as a biblical exegete, um, so to me, it's an insult to what Douglas. It's it's ironically by stealing Frederick's Frederick Douglass's story and the story of you know thousands of tens of thousands of others. It's it's racist it's it's exploitative hmm. so um that's why we need to talk about it because people are t- and and you know when i'm shaking hands at the door i had some confirmation from a couple of families i said uh, what what's the climate like at your workplace on the matter of you know racism and diversity and inclusion and intersectionality and these things and um uh, I, I had to, a side point, I had to be reminded, I had a meeting of pastors this week, intersectionality is, I, I, I've struggled to define that. And my pastor friend, fellow PCA pastor friend, Tom Hart, defined intersectionality for me as it's kind of the convergence of multiple categories of neglect and abuse. So like if you're a woman and you're Black and your uh, uh, lesbian and transgender; those are the the intersection of all those four minority categories, if you will, gives you more insight or more credibility or more weight in any contemporary discussion. So that's how he defined intersectionality. Is that how you I would define it?
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever defined it, but that aligns with what's what, in my head. What's in your head? Yeah,
1: you're yeah. you're you're more of a practitioner. You just have to deal with it probably on a on a fairly regular basis, be my guess in the workplace.
0: Yeah. Um, by God's grace, not as much as you would think, but yeah, I mean it's still still a bandied about, or or you know it's there. It's kind of. Unfortunately, becoming a little bit of the water that we swim in. Right. 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 Even it's if new, it's not... The new normal. Yeah, even if it's not explicit or
1: right. pushed. Right. So. so I don't have the ability, literally, I don't have the ability to, to preach a sermon on intersectionality. I don't know how to do that right now. But I think the sermon I preached uh, gives you the ability to think better about it. At least that would be my hope. And to the degree that we are sinning, if intersectionality is a virtue and in God's common grace, there are virtuous aspects to thinking intersectionally about people with multiple categories of marginalization. So that's a good thing to think about the marginalized. Um, To the degree that we need to learn lessons from intersectionalized humans, um, in God's grace, we, 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 need, we will and we must in our church. Um, I focused on the marginalized category of race specifically, not the others. And the, it's the combination of categories which makes, I think, at least from what I learned from Tom, and I think it's accurate to what I've been studying and, and, and uh, grasping over the you know recent months and years. But I think the sermon is a good offering in helping us to think about the virtues and vices of the current kind of cachet concept of intersectionality right well i would say
0: at a at a base or at a bare minimum it's a reminder or a exhortation to engage in those things to talk about those things, right. to think about those things. Right. So uh, I've, lament is maybe too strong of a word, but I've brought this up on previous episodes that we've done, where there's this, this little fear in me that I occasionally see in parts of the church, big C church, um, where we as Christians might be inclined to Circle the wagons, disengage with a hostile hostile, uh, culture, you know, and just kind of ride it out, if you will. And because things seem to have gone so far off the deep end in some cases, it's like, well, it's like, I don't even know how to... Ostrich. What's the point? And I don't even know what to do about it, right? right. So I'm just going to go throw my hands up in the air, go, all right, I'm just going to back out of this one, do the Homer Simpson gif where he fades back into the bushes. I don't know if you've ever seen I that. I have but, seen that image. Um,
1: do one of those and just kind of or, wait for things to pass. Or the ostrich head in the sand <laughs> comes to mind. Yeah. Or um, sometimes in uh, shoot-em-up movies that I watch, you know, A Little Child, in order to not remember puts on headphones and turns away from the carnage that's happening in right. the kitchen because the bad guys are all getting shot up, you know. Right. So we're we're the little child with the headphones except we're willfully turning away from carnage that's happening right next to us when Jesus is calling us to get involved and get get our hands dirty.
0: Yes. Yeah, I um we're told in the gospel accounts that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. And that was like an appalling thing for him to do. Right. You're talking about marginalized communities here. Jesus went, he's like, these are going to be my friends because they're the one who need me. Correct. And we're tempted, I'm tempted to disengage when they need Jesus, just like I need Jesus. Right. And this isn't a call to action where we, you know, you're not saying, hey, yeah, let's rewrite the history books and wipe things out and pretend like things didn't happen or, you know, some some of those kinds of movements that exist. This is, these people need Jesus. That's what we, that's what they need. They need the gospel, just like we need the gospel. So, you know, you're, you're the title of your sermon was God's free people last right. week and this week. Right, right. Um, and and I mentioned earlier um, before we hit the record button, this is coming off the heels of a mini series on the church and genuine love mm-hmm. and praising God together and and growing in grace. This this is all to get you know this is there's a lot of context here. We lose some of that when we hear you know it, you can't remember. Four, months, four weeks ago, yeah, you know what I mean? Right. That's why I love doing the podcast, because it helps me go, oh, yeah, we talked about this right. four weeks ago. Yeah, that plays in right here to what we're talking about today. So, um, yeah, anyway, what I was going back to five minutes in the past, what I was saying, Phil, was just you preaching that sermon is a explicit, not just a reminder, A a... I think I use the word exhortation to our church to engage in these things. And it doesn't mean, you know, social activism in the sense of like, oh, you know, we have to go out and, you know, join some type of group and go do something about it. But at the very least, we need to be thinking about it. We need to to be praying about it. We I, need would, to be I would
1: love it if, if that to, were to result, that yeah. people were to join a group and, do you know, do something about it, even a group that... Uh, a dei uh, board or you know task force and to, to challenge the flaw presuppositions in such such a group uh, in a loving uh, be, you know no pun intended to be a minority voice in that group <laughs> that's arguing for more of a christian realism than a non-christian utopian idealism there's another layer here though from homiletics that but I can't resist. It's just dangling <laughs> right in front of my face, Tim. And um, it's beneath the surface of the sermon, but it's there. And the phrase in the in the sermon was, uh, Frederick Douglass said, um, and y- you've got the quote in, fr- in front of you with the message, but he said, do we throw out our Bible? Hmm. M- remember that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was
0: Yeah, I'm gonna find it.
1: I was saying I'm I'm using, you know, I'm taking Frederick Douglass's approach in studying the scriptures. I think it's like on page one or two of that manuscript you got there. I will find it. Okay. Um <laughs> well so Frederick Douglass was was Yeah. Um Engaging in a, in, he, he was one voice in, in a larger sea of voices known as anti-slavery exegesis and very explicitly um, wanting to stick with the Bible. Mm -hmm. And at this time in, in the United States, among churches and seminaries and, Pastors and theologians, and so forth. Um, German higher critical methods of interpreting the Scripture were were infiltrating all of these institutions, and uh, the Second Great Awakening was around this time as well. Uh, revivalism, as a as an idea, was was. Uh, kind of extremely common during the Civil War itself, for instance, and this is some church history where I'm not, I'm not a church historian, but we can, we can uh, defer or refer people to, you know, smarter people than we are to look at. The history of the American church in the 1800s was not a good one. Hmm. Frederick Douglass himself was influenced by Strauss and some other German higher critical scholars didn't show up in in this particular area uh, of of his work as a pastor. Uh, What I'm getting at is that the very same liberal, unbelieving philosophies that were infiltrating the church around the topic of slavery in the 19th century, those very same philosophies are infiltrating the church today with progressivism, intersectionality conversations, Mm -hmm wokeism and these things. And so just like Frederick Douglass tried to be a voice of reason in that, I'm following my father, Christian father Frederick Douglass in attempting to use my tiny little voice in our church to say, uh, don't allow these worldly ideologies to infiltrate our understanding of the gospel. But they're quite popular for a reason. We can learn something from them.
0: I found the quote okay right on the first page (laughs) if only I would have looked there first this is from a speech that he gave in New York City in 1859 what do you do when you are told by slaveholders of America that the Bible sanctions slavery do you throw your Bible into the fire do you sing out no union with the Bible Do you declare that a thing is bad because it has been misused, abused, and made a bad use of? Do you throw it away on that account? No. You press it to your bosom all the more closely. You read it all the more diligently and prove from its pages that it is on the side of liberty and not on the side of
1: slavery. Right. So um, my thoughts on this come from an article by J. Albert Harrell, the use of slavery, the use of New Testament in the American slave controversy, a case history in the hermeneutical tension between biblical criticism and Christian moral debate. That's a mouthful. Mm. But uh, Harrell essentially surveys different approaches to using the Bible in opposing slavery, including Christians who decided they couldn't use the Bible and so they just opposed slavery because it was wrong. Hmm. <laughs> and um, I don't think that's an option for us. So I think Frederick Douglass is right, that we need to stand on Scripture for our positions. By the way, it's also what Peter is recommending. The Apostle Peter is saying, you're in, the, you're in an ocean of unbelief in the, in the Roman Empire. You've got to figure out a way to interact in a healthy manner with these institutions that you're around, including this institution of, of s- slavery hmm. and servitude and um, being in subjection to masters like Nero, the emperor, like the master of the household that you work for.
0: Not of the world, but in the world. Correct. Yeah, correct. If you don't mind, Phil, one of the things that you said um, in your sermon yesterday, which I think is worth revisiting a little bit more, is, you know, we're talking about the Bible has a lot to say about this topic. Um, and you, as, as the excellent preacher you are, went right back to Genesis. huh um, which I really appreciate. Um, and you do it often. It's not like I'm singling out right. the, the one time that you did this. But the fact that the Bible is a cohesive unit from multiple voices over hundreds of years Um different contexts, different people, different ways of writing, you know, Mm -hmm. it's this beautiful amalgamation of, of all these different things. And yet it says the same thing over and over and over again. It's not, it's different angles, certainly. Um, but it's not different messages. And all the way back in Genesis, you noted there's no slavery in in Eden. There's Mm -hmm. authority in Eden. There's a hierarchy given in Eden, but there's no slavery there. Um, and that was, I think, one of your first points in, in showing that slavery is is sinful. And in a way, and I don't know if you explicitly said this, but this is man's sin that's that we've put into the world, not something that God has put into the world.
1: Great point. So two things are worth mentioning here. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, is the so-called... Uh, uh, there's a name for it, but it's the exception clause. It's it's essentially Moses and God regulating divorce amongst the people. And when the Pharisees questioned Jesus about divorce, he said, uh, "They said to him, um, Moses allowed divorce. What do you think?" Right. And Jesus's response is, "He allowed divorce because of the hardness of your heart." I think this is uh, maybe Matthew 19, but it was not so from the beginning. Yeah. This is a great, this is one of the classic lines of Jesus. You know, all of Jesus's lines are are great, but that's one of the, that's in the top 10. It was not so from the beginning. It's like, it's like, whoa, you know? Right. Um, So many times the crowds are amazed at who talks like this? Yeah. You know, who, who thinks like this? And so it was not so from the beginning. Wow. So there's a, there's a hermeneutical uh, move that every faithful Christian should imitate. What was it like in the beginning? And that seems to me to be missed in the conversation about slavery. So we have these loads and loads of texts in the Old Testament to talk about slavery. But it's really just managing... Uh, a, a messed up situation that man created. It's not. It's not advocating something. Right. It's it's managing something, and I hope I made the point that it actually manages it fairly well. Yeah. I mean, yes, a slave is the property of another person, and property might tempt me to think that he's not fully a person. It isn't inherent. It's not inherent that I conclude. That if I own a person, that that person is not a person, but it's very tempting. Yeah. (laughs) So. Yeah. um, Having said that, my point is that the Bible isn't absolutely wrong. You know, mathematics—the absolute value of the statement "I am the property of another" is not "I am not a human being who doesn't bear the image of God." It's just it. I don't want to say just, but it's just a way of speaking of the fiduciary relationship between these two people, mm-hmm. one that I find very problematic and difficult, but that's probably the hardest thing that the Bible says about slavery, which I did not get into in the pulpit, by the way. Right. But most of what it says about slavery, that one hard thing being put aside for the moment, is it does a pretty good job of managing a bloodbath of sin, um, and in comparison, and I meant I did mention this to the nations surrounding Israel, it's quite, um, it's quite the shining light. Yeah, it's quite the shining light. So I think we've we've got a lot to be proud of. But even more than that, it's still managing sin. Yeah, the creation covenant did not include oppression and the ownership of one man by another. That was not part of the program in the beginning.
0: Right.
1: Uh, so, kind of quoting Jesus, someone asked me, Pastor, why is the Bible filled with so many statements about slavery? I'm just going to quote Jesus and say, it was not so from the beginning. So what was present in the beginning? As you say, authority? Well, God mm-hmm. and man. Yep. So God's present in the beginning, man's present from the beginning, covenant is present from the beginning, which is an arrangement in which God and man are working together in some defined terms. And that includes God is the authority, man has delegated authority, there's diversity, man and woman, so they aren't the same. Uh, Woman is under the authority of man, there's work to be done. So we have that concept of slavery. There's work to be done. Um, there's a, 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 and um, there's accountability if the work isn't done. So in the sense that slavery participates in the greater general category of work being done under the authority of another with diversity of gifts and accountability for its lack of completion then slavery simply perpetuates, if you will, um, with many, many faults, I think, the original creation mandate to subdue the earth. Um, So it's, it's, it's an arrangement, it's an economic arrangement for the creation mandate, which is problematic. But then again, sin is problematic. So I think when you view it in that way, you understand it, a, a little bit better um, it doesn't give it, it actually highlights in a, in a much all the more shocking way the degrading depths to which American slavery took us yeah um, but um, it, I think it also shows in a more general sense how modern employee employer relations are a species of slavery, or rather a species of work, of which slavery. And so, you know, as you look across the centuries, how, how work gets accomplished, and who's in charge, and what are the consequences for non-accomplishment of the work that was assigned. Um, you can see how really what we're dealing with is uh, human, fi- including capitalism, Communism, socialism is political arrangements in a a nation, right? So that's that's why I think it's important to go back to creation.
0: That about wraps up. (laughs) No, I mean, again, I appreciate um, even more so, you know, this conversation and kind of the expounding of that, but the firm... Footing, foundation, of. This is this is there. Implicitly in what Peter's writing, right? So, it's not like, Peter's working out of a different worldview or a different context and just coming up with this stuff. Um, and it's important for me, at least. Maybe it's just the way that my head works. I like to think through these things. I was a philosophy major. So that means I you know do a lot of thinking and then pretend I did something because I did a lot of
1: thinking sure um, but it also it, means you're you're a sucker for kind of the 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 rationale behind a thing or you you that's i'm teasing uh, I, but you I value
0: it yeah I, I value worldview discussion right It's the I prioritize that you know that are important when you're talking about subjects, particularly hard ones, what are the assumptions that we're making here? Are we talking the same <laughs> are we talking? We might be talking English, but we might not be talking the same language, you know, when it comes to this, some of these things. So um, super helpful. And uh, I'll be honest with you. I mean, slavery is a much kind of harder topic to to talk about and think about. But I mean, just read through the Bible, read through the Old Testament, and you go, what? Why this? Why this? You know, I've I've shared multiple times on this podcast in my reading plan. I've been going through Leviticus, and now I'm in Numbers, and it's like why, why, why all of these sacrifices? Why all of these feasts? Why the you know the all of the intricate detail and description of the holy place and who does what and what what priests do what and all this kind of stuff that wasn't there that wasn't there in the garden this is god giving us a way to manage kind of what we screwed up you know to really to really be blunt and broad about it um or what our foreparents screwed up in in the garden and we've perpetuated with our sins so um it it is helpful and and you you made the note and Refresh my memory, Phil, because I'm I'm not going to remember the exact point that you made. But you, you you made the eschatological note too from the pulpit yesterday. That that not only was it not there in in the sense that slavery that we think of slavery in the sense that it shows up in the Old Testament and then the New Testament and throughout history. It's not there in the garden. It's not gonna be there. And in glory. Happy.
1: Yeah. And so um, but I also took issue with the gradualist That's approach, right. which is essentially what the Confederacy, uh, you know, the, the more level-headed Confederates were arguing for. The, the, the extreme Confederates were, were just uh, rank satans. Um, but the level-headed Confederates were like, yeah, well, you know, this isn't a good thing. We know it's not a good thing, and it's probably not going to go on forever, but let's not fight about it. You know, let's let it gradually die out, and even some contemporary reformed theologians I think will uh, and I will say don't quote me on this I don't I, I couldn't couldn't tell you for a fact who those guys are, but I, I think they're there will say, you know, looking back with kind of with the armchair of, of history behind us, kind of smoking my cigar, so to speak,. Um, um, yeah, gradualism was the right way to go. And I don't think it was. I think that even though the eschatological movement of gospel advance would have eliminated slavery eventually, it had become such it had become so entrenched and so wicked that it necessitated police action and the violation of the sovereign bonds of state sovereignty, you know, the, the sacred bonds of state sovereignty is kind of maybe the way a southerner, a southern Virginian would have put it, and um, taking up arms against your brothers. So how I get to that position is, is a bit complicated, and it's, it's but it, it, it essentially puts me on the side of abolition, not on the side of gradualism hmm. not um not John Brown abolition, but then again there it's it's maybe a distinction without a difference in some people's minds blowing up was it Fort Sumter was that John Brown's act of terrorism um v- versus uh, you know, drawing up troops at Gettysburg, <laughs> you know, what's the difference? Well, John Brown is an independent agent, so that's one thing. And I'm, I'm with Calvin in that revolution and coercion and military action and a quote-unquote just war begins with the representative authorities taking action. And I, I simply submit to them, First Peter chapter 2, verse 13, so i'm submitting to the king when he says we're going to war against the south i'm 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 signing up so it's not my decision i'm not acting as an independent agent but it it is a, a tricky question you mm-hmm. know at what point does vigilante justice become warranted how bad does it have to get and i i don't have an answer to that question but but yeah i think i think that um what is warranted in light of the American slave controversy was a war. Hmm. Um, I, I, I guess I'm frightened of the implications of that statement because I'm essentially saying all the blood that was shed was, was worth shedding, but I think it was at some level. As horrif- horrifying as war is,
0: trying to pick the right words to, to respond. Um, I think I would agree with you, Phil, and, um, you know, my, my mind kind of comes to the present and trying to think about discernment and wisdom today and how do we How do we know or how do we attempt to know what God would have us do in our day and age in our circumstances, right? so we talked about well, even the 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 basic call to engage with conversation, engage with thought, right to not just sweep things under a rug or pretend like these problems don't impact us or or are unimportant or we don't have tools from the scriptures to deal with these things or to, to think through these things or to understand what God's will is in these situations. But, you know, you just said, you know, how do you determine when, when, when justice or vigilante justice is necessary? How do you determine even less than that when you should be saying something or you shouldn't be saying something or you should be doing something or you shouldn't be doing something. You know, and it could be something as egregious. There's egregious sin, which, in some ways, I think is maybe easier to to make those determinations. Not easier to do things, but easier to make a determination. If I see, you know, someone being beaten up on the street, I'm not going to just stand there and take video of it. You know, you go yeah. break up the fight, right? That kind of thing. But if if someone that you know or is an, or is an acquaintance, and you know is mixed up about some worldview things or, you know, saying some things that are out of line with the Bible, uh, you know, insert one of dozens of different Mm -hmm. (laughs) arguments that you would hear commonly on the radio and the newspaper, on TV and movies, you know, it's all over the place now. Do you, what do you do? What do you, you know, I've now taken out of slavery, slavery out of the, the context or the conversation, but I think the, it still, you know, it applies. The process applies. You know, right. so how how do we determine as Christians when is it that we wait on the Lord? When is it that we spring into action? Mm-hmm. And I would say the waiting on the Lord is acting. It's doing something. But
1: you you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think there's a v- vigilante in all of us that wants to act independent of authority, mm. and. Waiting on people who have authority to act is difficult. <clears throat> Didn't make it into the sermon, but the idea that we've waited long enough is essentially the yeah, that's one that's a one sentence summary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail to the clergy in the city. So he's writing a letter to the clergy in Birmingham, and it takes him you know twenty eight pages to say it. But we've waited long enough um, but uh to his credit, he's saying it from jail, where he went. He was put there because he was protesting um, peacefully protesting uh, an unjust unjust Jim Crow laws, essentially so um But I understand over time, MLK Jr. grew weary of the peaceful protest and we've waited long enough, uh, and I'm not an MLK expert here, but Mm -hmm. we've waited long enough, more and more took shape in his mind and thinking is what I've read and have been told of more of a kind of a Malcolm X kind of an approach, which is you know, active, violent, violent resistance, if you will. So <clears throat> I, th- I think we have to read these things. I, have to, I think we have to think about them. They are continue to be relevant. Um, we, you know, those who don't learn from the past are destined to repeat it. And mm. the modern-day culture wars that are going on, if we find Christians tossing the Bible out, saying, we've waited long enough and uh, i don't think we can say that but i'm i'm glad for the debate i'm glad for the discussion and i think we as a church need to you know we're not entering a national conversation in a sense we're just trying to figure it out for our fellowship and our ministry here but if people listening from other fellowships uh, same applies to them and you know when you take a look at all the christian churches across you know across america um hopefully we see god continuing to advance his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven uh one sermon at a time Mm.
0: i don't remember when you said this in the past (laughs) two hours that we've been talking but you know um the Lord's prayer, um, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Mm-hmm. That's everything. It this. is. And I think that's a good thought that maybe end on today is this isn't just outward things. This is everything.
1: Right. We're not just looking for a few nice sparkly laws to, you know, put the last quivering vestiges of racism in its place, you know, in the dustbin. We're looking for a total renewal of heaven and earth and the elimination of all sin everywhere. And uh, that's not, that new Jerusalem isn't as easy to build as we thought it would be. Hmm. It's an uphill battle every step of the way, and the enemy is dogging us and surrounding us and we have more work to do than we can do ourselves. So
0: I'm reminded of um Jesus' words in in Matthew, um, I am with you always. hmm Even to the end of the age. So while that's true, and I've used the word daunting many, many times in conversations. Even in, in this microphone, um, we have God, we have God, God right. of the universe on our side, yeah. and within us through His Spirit. So, I'd say it starts with us, the sin, the mortification of of our sin, the change that can happen in your marriage, in your household, in your neighborhood, on your street, in your church. You know we want God to act through the means of grace that he's given through his pride, through the church. Well, that's his people. So it starts with us, you know, and, um, I think you've given, he's given through you some impetus here with the words that you spoke in your sermon to help us begin that engagement if not we if we haven't already to think about these things to talk about it talk with others in our church about it talk with our friends about it talk with our neighbors about it do do something other than that's too hard I really don't want to think about it you know God calls us to do that um, we can't ignore it and if we try to then I would be so bold as to say we're, we're sinning at, at that point by neglecting um, or, or being unwilling to submit all areas of our life mm-hmm. to to Christ. That's dominion. true. So I feel like that's a very heavy way to end. So maybe you have something else that, that you no, can I,
1: offer I, up. I think but uh, we'll, we'll, I'll just reprise what you said. I am with you. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I know it's an uphill battle, but I'm with you. So we have to try, and we try in and through Christ who who is with us. And there's great reason for hope and optimism. Mm -hmm. We we are advancing, and we we will advance even more.
0: I feel like we've we've tried a little bit here today, Phil. Um, with
1: this conversation. You in your small corner and me and mine. Gotta start somewhere. Amen. But thanks for the, the
0: conversation today as always, brother. And uh we made our plug at the beginning, so I will make it again now. But um we do hope that you'll join us at least on the airways again next week. Um as we continue. We'll have to figure out the schedule for this because we do have Easter this week, if you're in the Glassboro area, um, I'd invite you to join us for our Holy Week services this week. We have a Good Friday service at 6:30 p.m. on Friday. I think it's the seventh at our church on University Boulevard, and then we have a Easter sunrise service. You're just you're really going for the the the. <laughs> brownie points this year, Phil. Or a glutton for (laughs) punishment. So we have a 6.30 a.m. sunrise service on Easter Sunday, which will be outside, um, and then our our usual 10 a.m. worship service on Easter Sunday. So if you're around, please join us. Um, All are welcome in our fellowship to uh, to celebrate um, the death and resurrection of our Lord this week. But And until uh, until next week, we we do pray that you would have a good rest of your day today and whatever day it may be that you're listening to this. And uh, we'll catch you next week on The Deeper Cut.